Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Listen, look at this um, this photo. This is from a conference that Heather and I went to in 2011 in Chicago with the Gospel Coalition. And we got there, and this is the banner that hung over the entrance to the conference. I don't know why, it really bothered me. And um, if you can't tell, the banner is a, it's there to promote the, the ESV version of the Bible. And it's got on it all these faces of some, some well-known pastors and, and leaders in America uh, that are sort of front and center. And so it's, it's meant to make people want to buy the ESV Bible because it's trusted by these people. And, and so surely it's good enough for the rest of us. I just want to ask a question, though. When you look at this banner... How many of you, just maybe by show of hands, would that make you, if you weren't sure already, would that make you more likely to buy an ESV Bible? How many? Yeah, maybe a couple. How many of you, it would make you less likely to buy an ESV Bible? Interesting. How many people, it actually would have no impact on your decision to buy an ESV Bible or or not? Hmm. Yeah, it it was interesting because... it occurred to me at the time, like, if this were a banner selling or promoting, like, hair care products, it would look exactly the same. Or if it were there to sell, like, sports shoes or, or perfume, it wouldn't look any different than it, than it did now. And, and all I could think of as I was looking at this banner was just like, my goodness, there, I know some people who, if they saw this, they would have a field day. Like, are we, are we saying now that, that God's word won't sell without a celebrity pastor endorsement? You know, like, is that where we are now? So maybe I'm overthinking, it's certainly possible. But, um, but the thing is, I, I actually, at the conference, I met up with one of the people whose faces uh, was on the banner. And, uh, and I asked him, hey, did you know when you posed for this banner, or when you posed for this photo, did you know that, that, that this is what they wanted to do with it? He was like, yeah, I know. It's, it's kind of weird, right? I said, yeah, do you, do, you think maybe, do you think maybe we shouldn't do stuff like this? Like, do you think maybe it should even come down? And uh, he didn't have an answer because he had to go. He was going to lead another workshop. But it was interesting that even 10 years ago, there was such a thing as this celebrity pastor phenomenon, you know? I've got another question for you. How many of you are familiar with um, with the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? Are you familiar with that? Yeah, it tells, if, you don't, if you're not, it's okay. It tells the story of a pastor named Mark Driscoll from Seattle and the church that he started. And it explores the reasons why it went from tens of thousands of people in its early days to closing its doors and, and all those people scattering. And, and it's a really hard listen but I actually do think that it's helpful and, and it's kind of instruct, instructive for us. Um, for me, as I listened to it, it actually brought back a lot of memories. Because I remember the days of Mark Driscoll very clearly. One of those memories was from a con- another conference that I was at. Uh, this one going back to 2006. And this was the Desiring God Conference for Pastors. Mark Driscoll was there. And he gave a talk. And everybody was really impressed because he did he did a great job and he was a great communicator. And after his talk, I was able to have a conversation with another one of the keynote speakers at the conference. And I was asking him just about 
just to kind of clarify and help me out, because I was really wrestling with what we used to call in those days, biblical manhood and womanhood. And I was hoping he could help me out. So I had some questions for him. And then, but, but, but the thing is, he was like, this, this pastor, this teacher, he was like, look, man, just look at Mark Driscoll. Like he grew a church to 5,000 people in six months by yelling at the men and telling the women to submit to their husbands. Like if it works for him, of course it's going to work for the rest of us. And, and you see how the, how the reasoning goes? Like the size of Mars Hill Church, that's all the proof that any of us needs. Like look at what's, what's going on there. Surely that's God's doing. Surely God is with Mark Driscoll and the rest of us should imitate him. Now, this isn't a talk today about Mark Driscoll. That's the last thing that I want to do. There are actually a lot of celebrity pastors uh, out there that we could name. If we took a survey, I bet you could name two or three of them yourself. One celebrity pastor that I bet that none of you would have named if I'd asked is actually Simon the Sorcerer. And he's the guy who's mentioned in this passage. I I have read this passage maybe a hundred times and I've failed to see uh, what this guy really is. Like it never hit me before that Simon the Sorcerer, he's like the original celebrity pastor. So let's talk about him. You know, just to be clear, I wish that we didn't have to talk about Simon the Sorcerer. To me, the real Holy Ghost story is what God did among the Samaritans. Like, do you remember the Samaritans? Jesus, in John's Gospel, chapter 4, he met a Samaritan woman at a well. Uh, She was really nervous because there was tension between the Jewish and the Samaritan people. And you may remember further back, like in the Old Testament, Israel was conquered and they're sort of scattered into exile. And and most of God's people returned, but some of them never did. And and some people, like they stayed out into the the nations and they mixed with the foreign uh, peoples. and, and, And those are the Samaritans. And the Jews see Samaritans as traitors and liberals. The Samaritans look at the Jews as narrow-minded, intolerant, kind of fundamentalists. And there's a lot of tension and hostility between these two peoples. But now it's revival time. And Luke, in, in verse 12 here, he says that when they believed Philip, okay, Philip the gospel preacher, Philip the evangelist, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. The Samaritans are being baptized and coming to Jesus. Like that's the Holy Ghost story here, okay? The Samaritans and the Jews are now one in Christ. That is what's amazing. That's what really what should amaze us in this story. Unfortunately, it's Simon who gets all the airtime. And so, yeah, we gotta, we need to deal with him. Now, Another thing I think I'd want to say here is that this stuff that we're going to talk about today applies quite a bit more broadly than just to pastors and churches, okay? Like anybody with authority over anybody else could be a Simon. So like maybe it's not a pastor or or a ministry leader. Maybe we're talking about a a, a relative. Maybe we're talking about in-laws. Maybe we're talking about a boss or a teacher or a coach or a supervisor and what I want to do today is I want this, I want to study this passage in order to let it sort of interrogate our own toxic ideas around leadership so that we will better appreciate the leadership of Jesus. Okay? Like if we can understand what was wrong and what was dangerous about Simon the sorcerer, maybe we will better appreciate what it means 
that Jesus is our good shepherd. All right, you with me? So let's get started. Uh, and first of all, just we want to ask, who is Simon? Who was this guy? So verses 9 to 11, he's like the biggest show in town. Really, he's the biggest show in town. And he says to himself, just check it out. Verse 9, for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great and all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. And they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. You see that? You see this? Verse 9, he boasted that he's someone great. He's the one doing the boasting. And all the people are giving them, giving him their attention and saying, you know who this guy is? He is the great power of God. So he's, this Simon the sorcerer, he's, he's famous and he's wealthy. He's got considerable resources. He's powerful and influential. He's built a huge brand for himself. And now the people have a name for him, which is that he is the great power of God. Do you see that? They call him the great power of God. Like he is God's power incarnate. And it's like, of course he is. He, he must be. How else do you explain what he can do if God isn't with him? How do you explain those results apart from God's blessing? You know? Well, there's a word for somebody like Simon the sorcerer. He's a narcissist. Okay? He's a narcissist. How many of you have heard the word narcissist before? Yeah, right on. Okay, so a narcissist, just so you know, Narcissus was a character in Greek mythology. All right, he comes from Greek mythology. He's a, a, a character who was, was absolutely stunningly beautiful. And he looked one day into the water. And when he saw his reflection, he fell in love with himself. And so since then, a narcissist is a person, it's like a label that we put on a person who is really self-absorbed, arrogant, uh, shameless, doesn't care about anybody else, a real like self-promoter. Okay, now in the mental health field, there's, there's a, a, even a, such a thing as a narcissistic personality disorder, NPD. So in some cases, you've got, you're talking about a person with NPD. Now, I'm not saying that Simon the Sorcerer had NPD. We don't, we don't know enough uh, about him. Okay? I also want to say not everybody who behaves like Simon the Sorcerer uh, has narcissistic personality disorder. We don't, we don't know that. I'm not qualified to diagnose it. Okay, so, so not everybody who behaves this way is, has NPD. Also, not every leader, not every pastor in the church is a narcissist. Okay, but every narcissist is attracted to positions where they can exercise power and control over others. And a church, at different seasons of a church's life, a church is the perfect environment for a narcissist. Okay. A church can be the perfect environment for a narcissist. That's why I love what Carl Truman, who's an American theologian, he says, he goes, if you are a narcissist and you don't want to put in the hard work to become a lawyer or a surgeon, then becoming a pastor is not a bad way to go. It's pretty great, right? So, so let's go back to the text now and let's see, what is it that Simon wants? What does he want? Now, just to, just to uh, you know, sort of recap verses 13 to 19, Philip here, he's going through Samaria. He's preaching the name of Jesus. Uh, he's telling, letting them know that, that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. And, and if you come to him, if you give your life to him, you yourself can be changed and, and, and have eternal life and, and have salvation. Okay, And the Samaritans believe and they're being baptized. They're joining the Jesus movement and becoming 
Christ's followers. In verse 13, it looks like even Simon the sorcerer, he believed at some level, like it's in some measure, Simon the sorcerer believed and he decided to go through with being baptized. And so there's this revival that Simon is part of. And, and this revival is such a big deal that Peter and John, they come down from Jerusalem, all right? They come down to Jerusalem to see, wow, what is going on here? Well, meanwhile, Simon the sorcerer, he's been watching Philip and he's been watching the other apostles now. And he sees that there are paralyzed people who, when the apostles lay their hands on them, these paralyzed people are able to walk and they're, they're healed. And, and there's, there's people who had been under the power of demons. And when the apostles put their hands on these people and pray, they are free from the demons. And when the apostles put their hands on others uh, who, who, are, who sort of come to faith for the first time, these people receive the Holy Spirit. And Simon is like, well, that is some power. Like, I got to get that. You know what I'm saying? And and so Simon, you can imagine he just he sets up a meeting with the apostles. He kind of maybe he drafts up a contract, like, I'm gonna make these guys an offer they can't refuse. And so, gentlemen, like I wanna I wanna take my ministry to the next level. I want you to be part of it. I have I have considerable resources, all right? I've got access to incredible amounts of wealth. You name your price, and maybe you want me to finance the churches in Jerusalem, done. Maybe you want me to, to buy the, uh, the parole uh, rates so that you, your, your friends who are in prison right now can be released. Done. Whatever it is, you name your price, I'll pay it. In return, you make me an apostle so I can give people the Holy Spirit. That's what I want. You make me an apostle so that when I lay my hands on other people, I can give them the Holy Spirit. That's what he wants, okay? He wants the power to give the Holy Spirit to who he wants when he wants, and he will pay for it. That's who we're dealing with here. That's who we're dealing with. Now, I don't know if you know this, but there's actually a word for it when someone tries to buy a position in the church or in its leadership. And that word is simony. Have you heard the word simony before? So the word simony is, it comes from this story. Now let's step back for a minute because one of the things that we've been doing as we have gone through these Holy Ghost stories this summer is we've tried to come back to our own context a little bit. You know, we've tried to step back and go, what does it look like if this is happening today? And so what I want to do is take a minute and, and, and answer the question, how will we know if it's a narcissist? Like, how are we going to be able to identify a Simon the Sorcerer in our own day? Like, what are the signs? And, and I've got a huge list I, I could share, but I've narrowed it down to these ones. Uh, and these are kind of based on personal experience, but also quite a bit of research, to be honest. And, and so I would say, these are the, what I'm going to share here, these are signs. Okay, these are signs that you were talking about a narcissist. One sign is that this guy has a big head. Not literally speaking, I'm talking like metaphorically speaking, he's got a big head. When he tells a story, most of the narcissist stories are about him. You know, if he's the hero of all his own stories, that's just not a good sign, okay? But that's who a narcissist is. He's the hero of all of his own stories. And, 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 and so that's one sign of a narcissist. Another one is that he's just, he's actually quite insulting toward other, other leaders. People who are equally, you know, um, e equally qualified, at least on paper, he is insulting and distrusting toward them. It's like nobody else knows what they're doing. They're all knuckleheads and idiots. He's the only one who knows uh, what to do. 
he, he, another sign is he probably is going to do a lot of name dropping. Okay, like a narcissist is going to mention the influential people that he hangs out with uh, when he's not with you. Okay, so he's a name dropper. Another sign uh, of a, a narcissist is, is all the yes men that he's probably surrounded himself with. Now, I don't know if you know what a yes man is, but, it, but, but yes men are, are leaders who you, you populate a team with and they don't correct you. But they're going to tell you that every idea that you come up with is a home run. Like, great job, boss. You nailed it. You're, you're awesome. You rock. And, and, and that's just not healthy. You know, it's not helpful and healthy for a leader to be surrounded by, by yes men who never challenge or correct him. But that's another sign uh, of a narcissist. Another sign is that he's probably pretty unaccountable. You know, like he doesn't like to be under authority. He doesn't like to answer to other people. And so things like meetings or policies and committees and stuff, those stifle the narcissist's freedom. You know, they get in the way of him being able to realize his vision because he wants to call the shots. He doesn't want to have to answer to anybody. That stuff just, it's just, it cramps his style if you're a narcissist. So that's another sign. Another is that he's defensive. Okay, he's going he's gonna to react really negatively to criticism and suggestions and questions. He's going to treat that like it's spiritual warfare. So that if you come forward and you've got questions or challenges for him, you're being divisive, you're being disloyal and, and unchristlike. So, so his defensiveness, that's a big sign of a, of a, of a narcissist. Another is he's going to do a lot of God talk. A lot of God talk. Here's what I mean by that. If he's got an opinion or an idea of his own, rather than just expressing it as his idea, he's going to couch it in spiritual language. And he's going to say, you know what? I think I know what you should do because here's what God told me about that, that you should do. Or he's going to say, you know, I, I know that you're wrestling with this decision. Here's what God wants you to do. Or, hey, church, you know, here's what God wants for us. And he's going to say it very uh, decisively and, and, and very sort of unilaterally. And people are going to go like, oh, okay, well, I guess that's what God says. So I guess we better do it. And, and that's, a really, that's an important uh, sign of a narcissist. Another is how he will sacrifice others. You know, so like when there's a, if there's a crisis, like God forbid there's abuse in, in the church or some sort of a real serious uh, a scandal like that, what, what the narcissist is going to do is his goal his, is to protect the brand and to guard the reputation of the organization, you know, keep it from, from being harmed or falling apart. And he's going to do that even if it means sacrificing a few sheep, maybe asking, uh, you know, an abused wife to go back to her abusive husband or asking a, an abused child to forgive the abuser. And that's what a narcissist is going to do. He's going to, that's what he's going to ask for. And that's not okay. And, and a last sign, I think, of, of a narcissist is, uh, is that he's just, he's actually pretty disinterested. He's personally disinterested. He's not as interested in, in you as he is in what you can do for him. Okay. So you get to the end of a conversation with a, with a narcissist and you just kind of feel like, wow, he actually never asked me any questions about my life. Does he even care? Does he know anything about me? Does he, is he, is he, does he appreciate at all what it's like to be me? Is he interested in anybody but himself? And the truth is a narcissist isn't. Now, as I look at this list, to be honest, there's a few of these things that I, I wrestle with myself sometimes. Don't you? And I would want you to know, like, just because you wrestle with one or two of these things doesn't make you a narcissist. But 
a leader who has several of these and where it's a pattern, that person's dangerous, right? They're dangerous. I know people like this. I know pastors like this in Hamilton. And, and what makes a narcissist dangerous isn't that, that narcissism is a worse sin than others, okay? I, I don't think that it is. I, I don't, I don't, it's not that narcissism is worse than other kinds of sins. In fact, one thing that's probably important to say here is that it turns out narcissists actually have a lot of shame and fear. They've got a really low view of themselves and they've got these really deep wounds and hurts inside that just go unexamined. And, you know, if they would take the time and, and create this space, the gospel could bring such healing and freedom in the heart of a narcissist. But a narcissist won't do it. A narcissist won't do it. Because a narcissist would rather be powerful than healthy. Do you hear me on that? A, a narcissist would rather be powerful than healthy. And that's why they need us so much. That's why Simon the Sorcerer is, is so dangerous. And that's why a leader like this, that's why he's so dangerous, especially in a church, in a church. Now, somebody who literally wrote the book on this is Diane Landberg. She wrote a book called Redeeming Power, which is great, and I encourage you if you can get a hold of it. But she says, if you are not aware of the power that you exercise, you are not as likely to examine how you are using it. So you end up feeding off people, using them to meet your needs or make up for your vulnerabilities. Maybe that looks like going to the grocery store and being hideously rude to the cashier. Or maybe it looks like schmoozing with everyone there and knowing that it is going to feed your ego because they'll all think that you're wonderful. As long as you're using the sheep for food, then you are a wolf and not a shepherd. You're a wolf and not a shepherd. Now, um, in fairness to Simon, it, we need to pause and just acknowledge that it's not actually all his fault. Like if we go back to the text here for a minute, um, it's going to show that we are part of the problem. Like the people are part of the problem with a narcissist. And so we want to ask, why is it that Simons are so attractive? Look at verse 9 here. The people find him amazing. Do you see that? Do you see that in verse 10? The people give him their attention. Do you see that it's the people who are praising him and calling him God's gift? Like this man truly is the, the great power of God. Like that's the people calling him that. You see that, right? And so there's something about a strong leader that we find attractive and, and, and helpful. And, 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 and of course there is. Like, Because let's be honest, a strong leader does all sorts of things for us. A strong leader can, can help our unbelief. Because like, I'm just a, I'm just a knucklehead. What do I know? But, but if it's like, if, if you've got a Simon, well, Simon's rich and he's famous and successful. And he could be doing anything that he wants. And he's into God. Well, if he believes this stuff, then surely it must be true. Right? So they, they help our unbelief. Uh, I also think a strong leader can do th our thinking for us. And some of us, we want that. We want a leader who does our thinking for us when we're not sure what to do. Because if you've got assignment in your life, you don't need to trust God. You don't need faith. You don't need wisdom and discernment because Simon the sorcerer is going to tell you what you should do. And, and you'll believe him. Some people really like a leader who can do our thinking for us. Another thing that a strong leader will do is they will really and genuinely encourage us. We'll find ourselves encouraged by our time with them. Like, suppose, you know, if Mike Molesky looks at you and tells you, dude, you're, you're intelligent, you're beautiful, you are wonderful, you are loved and gifted. Look, you matter. 
If Mike Molesky tells you that, it's like, big deal. But suppose it's 2011, and it's Mark Driscoll who's across the table from you and says, you know what? You're awesome. You got this. You got nothing to worry about. Well, a lot of us are going to find that really encouraging. And so a leader, a strong leader will encourage us. But the, another thing that a strong leader will do is they just, they actually make us feel important. They make us feel important. Like, especially if you know a Simon the Sorcerer personally, that feels good. You feel val- more, more important or maybe more valuable than other people. Because it's like, wow, he, he knows my name. Like, I babysat his kids. I know where he lives. I've got his cell number. I've had coffee with him once. I'm friends with his wife. They're in the same step class or something like that. And, 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 and so, so in all of this, we have all of these deep needs that somebody like Simon seems to be able to meet. And in exchange, we're happy to reward Simon with all kinds of positions and with all kinds of power. And, and just to be clear, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily an evil impulse on our part. I just think that it's misguided. It's misguided. Because imagine what would happen if the apostles agreed to this deal. Like imagine if Peter and John shake hands with Simon and now they got a pile of money. Now Simon is an apostle. Okay, great. But what is he going to do with all that influence? What's he going to do? Can he be trusted with that much power? Of course he can't. He, of course he can't. We can, And we know that because of Peter's response to Simon. Let's go back to the text. Look at verses 20 to 24 where Peter answers Simon and says, May your money perish with you, because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry, because your heart is not right with God. Repent of this wickedness, and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Now, I I see some important lessons Uh, in Peter's speech here. First, I think it's important to acknowledge that Peter actually speaks up and confronts Simon. I think that's really important because imagine if Peter said instead, like maybe some of us would do, imagine if Peter said, oh, come on, let's just, just give it time. He's a narcissist and so surely Simon's ministry is going to fall apart on its own eventually. Just give it time. Well, that may be true. That may, may happen. But the thing about a narcissist is that when it does, and his ministry collapses, what Simon's going to do is he's not going to accept responsibility for it himself. He's going to blame everybody else and say, well, they sabotaged me. They stabbed me in the back. They, they were traitors. They were jealous. And so for Peter, this is, it's too important. This is about protecting people from a dangerous person. So he's going to go on and he's going to name the problem and say, Simon thinks, Simon, you, you are wrong. How dare you? You think way too much of yourself and way too little about God. You think the spirit is some product or some commodity that you can buy and sell? No, like no way. The spirit is not for sale. And so you and your money, you should, you should rot for that. Like you and your money should perish for that. You should be destroyed for that. And then he goes on and he says why it matters. Peter's like, let me be clear. You are not one of us. You are not an apostle. You have no part in this ministry. We don't care if you're rich. We don't care if you're powerful. We don't care if you're famous. Other people may care about that stuff, but we don't. And God sure doesn't care about that stuff. God cares about the heart. And we can see that your heart is all wrong toward God. Well, then in verse 22, Peter offers him a solution. And and the way out is repentance. It's like, 
Simon, you are on this path, you're on this trajectory, and you need to turn from that. You need to pray for forgiveness because this is so bad and evil and wicked. You can't fix this on your own. You gotta instead, you gotta pray for God's forgiveness. And then verse 23, Peter speaks personally and he shares what he sees. He says, Simon, I I see that you are full of bitterness. Like this literally means you are a jug of poison. Like you are so, you're dangerous. You're going to hurt a lot of people because you are a captive to sin. Not only are you not an apostle, you're not even a Christian because you are a captive to sin. Now, I'm not saying that any of us should go out and say that to the narcissists we know in our lives. Okay. Now, although it may be time to confront somebody, and and that's important, um, I do think, though, it might be that you and I have friends and family who don't realize that their leader is a Simon and a narcissist, and they don't realize that the longer that they stay there, the longer that they participate, the more that they are part of the problem. And so maybe those friends and relatives and neighbors and co-workers, maybe what they need is for you and I to plead with them to get out and to find a healthy community. I am not talking here about having them leave those communities and join Benediction Church. That's not what I'm talking about here. I'm saying this is too, that a narcissist is too dangerous to be left alone. Now, is, is this something we could do? Is that pleading? Is that something that we could do? I think that it is if we believe that the danger is great enough. And it is. Guys, it is dangerous enough. What leader could be worse than a leader who tries to buy his power and doesn't earn it? You know, what What could be less Christ-like than a church leader who uses his gifts and influence on the people instead of using his gifts and influence for the people? You know what I'm saying? Like, what kind of a shepherd is more dangerous than a, a shepherd who doesn't feed the sheep, but who feeds on the sheep? And you know, it seems to me, maybe part of why Peter reacts this way is that he has seen this before. Peter's seen firsthand what happens when powerful people think that they can buy and sell God. Because not long before this, maybe, maybe just a few months, there was a meeting with another apostle. And they made Judas Iscariot an offer that he couldn't refuse. And, and they gave him a bag of money in exchange for God's son and in order to, to protect their own power and their own position. And then they murdered Jesus. They put him on a cross. And it seems to me Peter won't let that happen again. He knows that people like this, they're just too dangerous. They are too dangerous. And so the warning here in this story, I think, is that in a culture like ours, that's already so cynical and suspicious, there may be no greater threat to the church and our witness than an unchallenged narcissist. Do you hear that? There may be no greater threat than unchallenged narcissists in the church. Now, I also think, Phil, that that's why the gospel is such good news. It's such good news because while while the danger from a slime is, is very big, I also think that the opportunity that we face right now is huge. There may be no greater apologetic for our faith than if our churches and communities are content with safety and health, if, if not size. Like if we're content to be healthy, if not huge, man, that preaches. 
That makes Jesus look really good. I'm talking about a setting where our leaders are ordinary, average, loving shepherds, not celebrity pastors. I'm talking about homes and businesses and teams and churches where we are learning to take our saving faith and take it off of the leader and put it onto Jesus because Jesus is so much better. He's so much better. He's a better shepherd. He's, Jesus is a better shepherd. Jesus would never use or abuse or exploit you. He loves you. And Jesus isn't for sale. He can't be bought. He isn't building a, a brand. Jesus is building a kingdom, and he calls you and I his brothers and sisters and co-heirs in that kingdom. We get to rule with him. And Jesus won't bully or intimidate us. Jesus says, you know what? I stand at the door and I knock, but it's your door. I stand at the door and knock, and what happens next is up to you. And Jesus would never endanger the sheep. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, you know, like just in the same way that the Father knows the Son and the Son knows the Father, in that way, that's how this that's how our good shepherd knows us, his sheep. And he says, I lay down my life for the sheep only to take it up again. I have that authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. And it seems to me, you know, Jesus isn't some greedy narcissist. He doesn't need any power from us because he has all the glory, all the power. Jesus can rise from the dead. So like, what does he need from us? What, what, what do I think I'm going to offer or what, what need am I going to meet in a person who, when he's dead, can rise himself up again from the dead? Okay? He doesn't need anything from us. He, he is not looking to impress us or amaze us. Jesus wants to save us and forgive us and heal us and know us. That's what he wants. And that is a lot more than any celebrity pastor will ever give. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.